but um, we still have some questions from last week that um, I think throughout the week oh, some of these hold, were answered. Hold, hold, hold. You're going to be serving up old questions? Oh, no. But those some. are from last week. Some. That's old questions. And we have new questions for this week. How many of you like leftovers? <laughs> There's always a couple of stickers in the house. <laughs> All those who submitted questions last week who didn't get them answered, they like old questions. <laughs> yeah, I see you nodding back there, Brother Mac. And your wife pointing at you didn't hurt any either. <laughs> So, <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of different questions have come come in, but I I just want to start out by saying myself personally that um, I have been in several Q and As with uh, Brother Readout before, and uh, I have asked some what I thought were difficult questions, and um, he really helped me to understand those passages of Scripture. So, um, but this one right here is not really based on a passage of scripture. This comes, it comes from a young lady, and hopefully this will be helpful for the ladies, some of you young ladies, and some of you dads, and, and um, those involved in ministry. I've had this come up from time to time over the years. But how should a Christian young lady respond if she senses something is not right in a young man. I've had it to where they've come to me and they say, I, I feel something's not right about him. There's no proof, there's no evidence, but they just feel something. Avoid him as though he had a contagious fatal disease. <laughs> That was, that was the concise, very specific, and reasonable answer to that question. Because if there's something inside of you that is warning you about something inside of them that's not right, pay attention. Because there's something not right. And it's, it's very possible that it would not be something known by others. You know, there are secret sins. Didn't the scripture say that we could ask the Lord to keep his servant back from presumptuous sin and secret sins? Yeah. The worst sins of all are very seldom those that are made public. They're the ones that consume the thinking of a human being and affect their motives. So ladies, young ladies especially, uh, avoid them like the plague. You don't have to give an explanation. You know, just avoid them. Don't get involved. You don't have to establish a friendship or a bond of some kind with them, if you have a sense that they're not right, then honor that sense. And worst case scenario, and when I say worst case, I mean this is trouble on all sides. 
if you sense there's something not right with the guy, but you have an interest in him, uh, get to an altar. Start talking with the Lord. And if that doesn't help, then pester your pastor. And your pastor will probably follow the instructions I give for counseling, right? Yeah. And those of you who don't know those, be thankful that you don't know them. But uh, don't endanger yourself. One of the things the Word of God says about the days in which we live now is they are perilous times. Have you ever studied that word perilous? A peril is a severe danger you're not aware of. You don't know it's there. And so we live in times where there are dangers that'll sneak up on us. And if we're not careful, they'll catch us unawares. So when you get something just consider that it is most likely the Spirit of God in you giving you a caution. You don't have to berate him. You don't have to accuse him of anything. You don't have to explain. How many of you guys went through years of school with the girls that you were interested in ignoring you? <laughs> yeah, well... Take that as a sign. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. That's, that's the answer. The scripture is very clear that if we associate with the wrong people, it will corrupt us. We're not going to convert them. Don't be deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And if you look at what the underlying words in the text mean in the original language, they simply say, you get involved with the wrong company and it will ruin your lifestyle. Okay. I can go on for days on that because there's nothing significant about that except for, you know, I can just tell what I think. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so we we had some uh, sessions earlier in the week on prayer. So this question is asking about corporate prayer. Um, is it needed? What would be an application to that in the church? I hope I will, in this, answer all of the remaining questions about prayer. Look for the example in Scripture. If there isn't one, then wonder where that practice came from. And don't ascribe to it any kind of spiritual authority or any scriptural purpose. If it's not found in scripture, it doesn't have a scriptural purpose. I figured out some years ago when the Lord started dealing with me about prayer that the reason I want to ask others to pray for my situation is because I don't have any confidence in my own prayers. <laughs> you know what the solution is when you don't have confidence in your prayers? 
There are altars. And you can go and get right with God and you'll find 90% of your prayer life is improved. Right. Does anybody here really believe that God still speaks to people today? Absolutely. Oh yeah, they speak to the bishop. Yeah. Uh -huh. In fact, the higher up the ladder you get, the less likely it is you'll get a, a word from the Lord. You know what the Lord said about climbing the ladder? You can only climb it as far as the lowest rung, and then you run out a ladder to climb. Because he that would be greatest of all shall be the servant of all. So yes, God can still speak to you. Have you ever had it happen? When the preacher's preaching, he's preaching on some subject out in the far left field, and the Lord sends a strike right down your path. I've, I've had it happen. People come to me and thank me for the message. How did you know about my problem? And I said, what problem? And they would tell me something. They got helped by that message, and it had nothing to do with what I preached. Because <laughs> God's Spirit's not limited to what I preach. Do you believe that? Yes. Well, then talk to him. And uh, the great secret to success in talking with God is for you to listen. Well, I gave him 15 seconds and he didn't answer. <laughs> yeah. You got what you deserve. So prayer, corporate prayer. Yes, there are times when we are together and we are told to pray in every situation, in every place, at all times. And the secret to being able to fulfill those scriptures is knowing that prayer is obtaining and maintaining a right relationship with God that facilitates a free-flowing mutual communication that enables you to be able to work in harmony with him. And it's not just the things you do. It's not just the things you say. It's being able to actually walk in the spirit. This is scripture. This is not my opinion. This is scripture. We are to walk in the spirit. In him we live. And breathe. And have our being. So why do we wonder, where is he? Everywhere. All the time. The only thing missing is our awareness of him. I think the song, some song today said something about that. Make me aware, Lord. Help me be aware. And uh, so you can hear from God. And God doesn't have to do anything special. You remember the story when the prophet was up on the, the hill at Dothan and, and the enemy was all around. They had him surrounded and they were so massively outnumbered and his servant got all excited and hot and bothered. Oh man, what are we going to do? And the, the prophet just prayed, Lord, open his eyes. He didn't say, oh God, send a mighty army of angels because they were already there. They'd been there all along. 
they follow us around. So we get in tune with the Lord and all of that takes care. Corporate prayer, I have no problem with praying with other people. I kind of like it when we are all getting ourselves in tune with God. Now, if you're talking about corporate prayer to try to add to the numbers of the prayers so that we can more efficiently motivate God to do what we want, just forget it. All you're doing is building a spiritual pride in yourself that will bring you down someday. You are not going to motivate God. Can I say it again? And it doesn't matter what big names you get to pray with you about it or how many of them you get to pray about it. God is not going to be manipulated. All of his works were accomplished before the beginning because he doesn't work in time. He doesn't live in time. Time is a product of his work. He's not limited to time. He already, he already knows the sin you're going to commit tomorrow. <gasps> well, if that deters you from committing it, praise the Lord. <laughs> but if you find yourself in a circumstance and you do wrong, he doesn't go, oh my, what am I going to do? They blew. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And all of his works are known unto the Lord from the beginning of the world. So what are we praying for? What is the corporate prayer trying to accomplish? You know, my prayer is not going to put you in right status with God. Nobody else's prayer is going to put you in right status with God. Now, my prayer, my status with God, might be able to determine if you're in right status or not. That's like young ladies. If, if you're feeling that guy's a goofball, well, where did that come from? Okay. Your, your status with God might be letting you know that this person's not in right status with God. And if he's not, then ignore him. And so it is with corporate prayer. What is the purpose? What are we trying to do? When we go to prayer individually or corporately, what are we trying to accomplish? We're going to change God's mind. From all-knowing to ignorant. Well, that's the only change that can be made in an all-knowing mind. Come on. When you think of God's attributes like that and you apply them, these questions get a little easier to answer. So corporate prayer, what's the purpose? Well, as a pastor, when I call the congregation to prayer, my purpose is for each one individually to find their closet, to prepare their closet, to get in their closet and pray to their Father which seeth in secret and heareth in secret. But if your prayer is intended to motivate somebody else, listen, if anybody but God hears it and you wanted them to hear it, that's all the reward you get. You don't get any thanks from God. Oh, look at that dedicated prayer. I sure hope that person they're praying to pays attention. 
So corporate prayer. It's hard to speak against prayer. But when it's not right, it's not right. You got it? We do not add potency and power to our prayer by getting a lot of other people praying with us. If you pray anything according to his will, he hears you. And if you know that he hears you, you know you have the petition whatsoever you ask of him. That's in 1 John 5. Do you believe it? Uh, I know what we don't believe is that we are actually asking according to his will. Because most of the time, I don't want his will. I want mine. Yeah, and if that's a sin to confess it, then it's a sin to confess it, but I still confess it. Most of the time, I'm not anxious to ask God what I need. I'm anxious to tell him what I want. And if all he's going to do is ever give me what I need, I'm probably going to have some time I'm not so happy about it. Because he tends to want to deal with the things I love about me. And I, I love those things about me. Does everybody understand? Is that good enough for that answer? Yes. Don't ask them. I'm asking you. I didn't ask them. I'm trying to look at the person who asked <laughs> without giving it away. I think it's good. Thank you. You're a good man. Uh, <laughs> so this question um, I'll just ask all these questions because they're associated together um, it has to do with worship how do we define true worship the difference between worship and praise and what's an example of true worship praise is extolling God for the things he's done worship is adoring him for who he is. When it comes to our church services, I've asked all of our musicians in the church I've pastored for those 42 and a half years to consider who's your audience. Sing to your audience. And you know, that cut out about 80% of the song. Because about 80% of the songs were to us and about us and for us and to make us feel good and to get us excited. They weren't singing to the Lord. And we changed the words of songs to make them to the Lord instead of about Him. Is that a new idea? Which is better? To sing about him or to sing to him. Sing unto the congregation a new song. I don't think that's what that song says, is it? Sing unto the Lord. So if you're singing to him and it's all about how great we are, how blessed we are, something's amiss. There's a lack of understanding there. That's not worship. That's not worship. 
And I have really appreciated the songs we've had here these last almost two weeks now because they have been to the Lord. When they talk anything about us, it's thanking him for what he's done. And that's worthwhile. So praise is giving thanks to God and acknowledgement to God for his gracious works toward us. And worship is extolling him and praising him, loving him and adoring him for who and what he is. That's right. Sister Bobby Shoemake sang a song. We have a recording that she gave us. And I happened to be in the hospital one week, and it was a terrible situation. I wasn't doing all that bad, but the roommate I had was, uh, well, he would embarrass sailors with his language and his behavior. We were both confined to the bed. That means the bed was set with an alarm that if we made a movement that might indicate we were trying to get out of bed, it would set off alarms. And how many of you have been in the hospital, been in the bed? You have that little push button that calls a nurse? How many of you know that that hardly works? <laughs> but that alarm, when you go to get out of the bed, you're not supposed to, it gets nurses and orderlies and doctors in there within seconds because they don't want to be liable for an insurance claim for you falling down and getting hurt. And he, the roommate, wanted to get up every 10 minutes. And so I would just start getting comfortable. You know, and it's, it's awfully hard to rest. You know, and they put me in that room for rest purposes. Take me back to the ER. I got some sleep there. <laughs> I know there are bells going off, but they're nice bells. They're ding, ding, ding. Not that loud air raid siren. But Sister Shoemake's song came to me after a couple of days of that. Her song, I don't believe she wrote it. I don't remember who wrote it. I looked it up. But the song was that uh, he'll be enough for me. And uh, I sang that a few times, and I realized, this is stupid. I'm here, and nobody's paying attention. And I turned it around, and I said, you'll be enough for me. And that kept me through four days of a bad deal, because I was worshiping, just in singing, you'll be enough for me. Uh, The, the words say, I've been through enough to know that you will be enough for me. And I will confess that there were occasions in those times when I shortened it to, I've been through enough. <laughs> hey. You're going to lie to him? Come on. You're going to lie to him? So you can just work as hard as you can to sound eloquent and, and wonderful. But he, he knows you. <laughs> he sees your heart. He knows you're thought afar off. 
In fact, he knows what you're going to ask before you do. The scripture says that he answers before you ask. All right, so worship. I think the goal of our corporate meetings ought not just to be to praise, but they ought to be to worship, to sing to him, to glorify him. And in response, we can anticipate that he will speak to us. And that the word that goes forth from that pulpit will be exactly what you need. And I warn you, if you go to church and you don't think you're getting what you need from the pulpit, you're the one in trouble. Because the Lord can use a donkey. And if you think he can't use the pastor or the visiting minister, something's wrong with you. You become a critic and a judge. And I want to counsel you, do not become a sermon connoisseur. I learned that even when the preacher is not right with God, something he brings out of the word of the Lord can help me. So you don't take everything. You take what's in the scripture and learn what the Lord intended there. Worship. That was a pet peeve, by the way, in case you couldn't tell. Oh, one, one more thing. If your purpose is to encourage the audience, then it might be appropriate to sing a song about the Lord that encourages the audience. But you sing to your audience. And your audience ought to be Him. Okay. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. What does this mean? Does it help with spiritual warfare? I'm not going to hate the person that asked that question. Some 30 years ago, Brother Urshan, N.A. Urshan, our general superintendent at that time, asked me if I would do a study for him because his schedule was so full and busy for months and he didn't have time to devote to doing a study in Scripture. His topic that he wanted me to create a, an answer for or an exposition about was ordinances. The word ordinance and ordinances in scripture. Well, Brother Urshan was my first mentor and a mentor all of, of his life after that. And so I gave myself to it. And I, I did very little else for three weeks but study that subject in scripture. And I found out that an ordinance is a special instruction from God or a command from God that is sent to us through a messenger. And Paul commended the Corinthians for paying attention to the ordinances that were delivered to them. He also warned and scripture warned that if you ignore or violate an ordinance, your soul is in jeopardy. Yeah. 
That's not just you know, something written on stone. God sent a messenger with that special instruction. And one of the things that Paul identifies as an ordinance is the ordinance of women's hair. That they aren't supposed to cut it. They're supposed to let it grow. And a woman's uncut hair is her glory. Let, you know what glory is? You ought to try looking it up sometime. It's almost impossible to find any kind of definition of the Greek word doxa or the English word glory or the Hebrew word without finding that they use glory as the definition. Well, that helps. You know? Glory is your personal magnificence. That's what it is. And so, ladies, God gave you your hair to be the demonstration of your personal magnificence. Something he gave you. So when the scripture talks about the women and having their hair covered because of what? The angels. You know that word angels means messengers. Because of how the instruction about your hair came. That's what it means. Did you get that? It's an ordinance. God gave that instruction to his people through a special messenger. You ignore that at your own risk. So just abide by it. And you know what happens? Your personal magnificence grows every day. Whether your hair gets long or not, as long as you aren't shortening it, your personal magnificence grows every day because that's what God gave it to you for. It took me three weeks to do that study, by the way. 65 pages. I gave it to them both in English and in Greek. Uh, the, the scriptures. I didn't write it in Greek. So many good questions. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> All right, here's one. Um, You've heard uh, the scripture talks about the unforgivable sin. And then everyone says it's blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. So, Brother Reed, I've read what you've written about that. So, so why are you stupid <clears throat> me with the question? <laughs> because you're the guy answering. <laughs> so, I was completing the writing of the fifth lesson in my Bible curriculum uh, and it was called the timetable of forgiveness and by the way I, does anybody know when God forgives sin? already that's when he did it already 
Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole cosmos. And he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world in God's mind. That's why we all have a little hope. But while I was finishing that lesson, the Lord reminded me that there was a significant issue concerning forgiveness and remission that I had not said anything about in the lesson. And for a teacher, that's not acceptable. A teacher can't write an answer. That's why Q&A is hard for me, because everybody wants an answer. And I have a hard time just giving an answer. I want to give a proof. I want to prove that what I'm telling you is the answer to the question so somebody who's more eloquent than I can't deter you from it. Understand? So that subject was the unforgivable sin. And I wrote down in that lesson everything that my elders had taught me, everything I'd ever learned about the unforgivable sin and blasphemy against the Holy Ghost and to bring it home to me, the Lord spoke to me audibly to me and said, you're an idolater. Fighting words. I don't suggest any of you ever try to call me an idolater. I will lose my spirituality. And you might lose your life. <laughs> But I had already learned when God calls me an idolater, he's trying to reveal something about himself to me that I'd missed. And when I challenged him, I didn't challenge him this time. I begged him, you know, okay, Lord, what am I missing? He said, you are presenting the idea of a God whose forgiveness, whose mercy has an off button. And that a human being can do or say something flips that off button. He said, and that God is not me. I not only don't have an off button, if I did have, you couldn't push it. But what happens is a human being has an off button. And God won't push that off button. But we will. When we get to a place, we can make a decision that we will not respond to God's encouragement. We will not respond to God's correction. We will go on and do our own thing in spite of it, and we turn off our ability to receive His grace. That's unforgivable. Let me give you some other unforgivable sins in the Scripture. All right? How about this one? Resisting the grace of God until you die. Is that forgivable? No. No, because as you die, that's how you stay. How about this one? You know this one, but you don't know what it means. There's a commandment, and it was taken so seriously by God's people. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. 
Well, if you're not going to be held guiltless, how are you going to be held? Guilty. So taking the name of the Lord in vain is unforgivable. And that doesn't mean just speaking it frivolously or in cursing. You know how Israel took his name in vain? They wouldn't even speak it. But they allowed themselves to be called Yisrael. And wherever they went, they allowed themselves to be called Yisrael, Prince with God. But they didn't live up to that name. God said, everywhere you go, you defame my name. Because you don't live like you're supposed to live if you were Israel. And we take his name when we are baptized. Hello? Don't we make a big deal out of that name in baptism? Yes. Do we do wrong when we make a big deal out of that name in baptism? No. Not at all. But what is it? You know what Acts 2.38 says. I've done this in lots of places with lots of ministers. And very rarely does a minister catch the error. It happens, but very rarely. When I tell them I'm going to quote Acts 2.38 and I'm going to add a word that is not in the verse. That's not in that text. And if you catch it, wave your hand. Don't say it, just wave your hand that you got it. Who did was that? Christy? Joel. Yeah. I forgive you. Because if I don't forgive you, I'm in trouble. Because unforgiveness is an unforgivable sin. So, you ready? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you did that a little early. <laughs> because if others saw you lift your hand then, they might figure it out. Yeah, the word your is not there. The word your is not there. Baptism in the name of Jesus Christ will remit your sins. That's proven in Acts 22.16. But that's not what Acts 2.38 says. It's for the remission of sins. Those you commit and those that are committed against you. God gives you the power of his name yes. to forgive people who do you wrong. Oh, yes. And if you can have your 10,000 talent debt forgiven and turn around and hold a grudge against the guy that owes you a hundred pence, you are not going to be forgiven. That's blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. That is doing despite to the Spirit of Grace. That is trotting underfoot the blood of the Lamb. So, unforgivable sin. You have it. A button that you can push 
that will prohibit you from receiving the grace that God's freely given. What did he say? He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's what he said. Did he mean it? Yes, he meant it. Or he wouldn't have said it. So why doesn't everybody come to him? Because we've got off buttons. If we aren't forgiving to other people, we flip that button. And we can't receive the grace of God for our unforgiveness. Didn't Jesus directly say that in the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah. Unforgivable sin. Right. Don't think that God's got an off button. And when you cross a line, he says, well, that's it for them. That's not true. But you have a line you can cross and you say, well, that's it for him. Amen. What is the fellowship of the mystery? Well, you know, to give you the answer to that, I got to give you the what is the mystery. Right? The fellowship of the mystery are those who know what the mystery is. Okay, that's easy. Okay, we're done. <laughs> I love doing that. Shame on me. All right. The mystery is spoken of. Now, it's not just a mystery. It's the mystery. So it's a particular mystery. It's a special mystery. Paul spoke about it to the Corinthians in chapter 2. He said that he determined not to know anything among them, save Jesus Christ and him, the Lord of glory, crucified. He said the princes of this world didn't know this, this mystery. It was kept secret from the foundation of the world, this mystery. And because they didn't know that Jesus Christ is in fact the Lord of glory, they participated in his crucifixion. But if they'd known that, they would have never had anything to do with it. Can you find any place in scripture where Satan sasses at God? You know, I was stunned when I first recognized as I was studying the book of Job for personal reasons, that when the Lord instigated the situation with Job, he said, Satan, whence comest thou? And Satan blew his precious opportunity to say, none of your business, big nose. <laughs> that didn't happen. And not only that, he didn't lie about it either. You believe in one God? Some of you do. Shall we try it again? <laughs> do you believe in one God? Yes. That's kind of half-hearted. Do you believe in one God? Yes. Congratulations. So do the devils. The difference between them and you is they tremble. Because they know who they're dealing with. That he's their creator. That all he has to do is say, disappear and they cease to exist. 
because he brought them into existence from nothing. So you don't find that happening. People do that. God doesn't do that. And devils don't do that. So the mystery is that the almighty, everlasting, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal God manifested himself in flesh as Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. They didn't know that. The princes of this world, which come to not, they did not know that. Had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Was he the Lord of glory? Was he the Lord of glory when they crucified him? So if they had known he was the Lord of glory, would they have crucified him? Not in the very least. And that was the mystery, what Paul also called the hidden wisdom. And he refers to it later in the book of Revelation. And you probably ought to open your Bibles for this. Revelation 16. Has anybody here figured out that not all of the preaching of Jesus Christ is correct? Yeah, Romans 16, read for us. Or no, Romans, I'm sorry, Romans 16. Did I say revelation? You know why I said that? Because it is a revelation. Okay, I'm sorry. 16, 25, 6, and 7. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. That's the preaching of Jesus Christ that has power in it. It's the preaching of Jesus Christ which is according to the revelation of the mystery. What do you know about the mystery? Which was kept secret since the world began. Kept secret since the world began. Did you ever wonder why when demons encountered Jesus... He said, we know you who you are. And he told him, keep quiet. You know why he told him, keep quiet? Because from devils, this had to be kept a secret. Because had they known, they would not have encouraged anybody to crucify him. Which was kept secret since the world began. But, but, but now is made manifest. Now is made manifest, made visible. It's made known. It's made manifest and... By the scriptures of the prophets. How long had the prophets been around? How long ago had they written? They wrote about it. They made it plain in scripture. But even if it's plain in scripture, if God keeps it a secret from you, it's a mystery. But now, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting, everlasting God, made known. Made known unto all nations. Made known unto all nations? Why? For the obedience of faith. 
for the obedience of faith. By the way, the obedience of faith isn't talking about faith's obedience. It's talking about our obedience, which is predicated on our knowing God. That's what faith is, our knowing God. And when that revelation is made known through the preaching of the scriptures of the prophets, it makes it possible for people to know God, and then when they do the work, it's in obedience to God not in order to get a favor. So that mystery is the revelation of who Jesus really is. And the fellowship of the mystery is that group of people who share that revelation. I can call it something else you'll recognize. The body of Christ. The church. Yes. I'm done. Okay. You can dismiss if you want. Do <laughs> <laughs> an altar call. And... It's a great fellowship. Yeah. And I can't, I can't emphasize enough. It's something more than just knowing the doctrine. Yes. Knowing him is different than knowing the facts about him. I encountered President Ronald Reagan on three separate occasions. I, I was closer to him for two hours than I am to my son Tom right there. That distance, there was about half that distance. Face to face. But I don't know Ronald Reagan. I met him. I didn't know him. Things about him I don't know. It's having the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. Who he really is. And when we get that, we join a fellowship that is beyond compare. There's a brotherhood formed there. There's a bond that's formed there. There's a relationship that's formed there that we actually hurt when they get hurt. Yeah, they get a toothache and I weep. That's the kind of and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. This fellowship of the mystery, is it related to the fellowship of the Spirit in Philippians 2.1, the fellowship of the gospel in Philippians 1.5, and the fellowship with us in 1 John 1.3? In point of fact, it is related. Because in every one of those passages, it's talking to people and about people who have that revelation. The revelation is the key. If you don't have a revelation of who Jesus is, you won't have any of the rest of that. You may think you do, but that doesn't mean you do. What is the foundation of the house? The revelation of who The Jesus. revelation of Jesus Christ. Whatever isn't founded on that revelation is not in the house. 
So yes, the fellowship of the mystery is related to the fellowship of the spirit because you are not going to have the relationship with God and the spirit without that revelation. Which God are you relating to? The God you think he is or the God he really is? You can't afford to get involved with another Jesus. One who is not quite exactly the same as all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. Maybe the one who is co-equal. No, that's not the same Jesus that Paul preached. Okay. So there is no fellowship in the spirit if you don't know who Jesus is. Okay, all right. I, I think I covered okay. Excellent. Say that again. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what does it mean that we are made in the image of God? You know, for 1,500 years, Roman Catholic cardinals and bishops would argue whether Adam had a belly button. I'm not joking. Because the, the thought was that God doesn't create anything useless. And so if Adam had a belly button, what use was it? You understand? That was their problem. And they, they debated that and they argued about that back and forth for 1,500 years. I have a word for that. Stupid. Here's what the scripture says. Adam was the figure of him who was to come. And he who was to come spent nine months in the womb of his mother, and he had a belly button. And it was modeled after Adam. That, isn't that just as simple as it can be? If they had just not ignored one verse, they could have saved themselves 1,500 years of debates in their councils, crying out loud, God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Don't think that the dust of the ground is actually the man. That's his form. New Testament tells us it's the house that he lives in. Right? And when the man body dies, it returns to dust. The spirit of God that animated that body returns to God who gave it. But the man lives on because when God blew into his nostrils the breath of life, man became. And the following words tell you what a man is, a living soul. It doesn't say that God blew into the man the breath of life and the man became a living soul. That's not what the Hebrew says. 
the Hebrew says, God blew into him the breath of life, and man became. No longer just dust formed, but man became, and the man is a living soul. This will help you when you start studying about death. What dies? What dies? The flesh. Is that you? No, that's not you. You are a living soul. And when you die, you're going to go somewhere. And you are going to live on forever because God didn't make the man mortal. The body became mortal when he ate the fruit. So we are created in the image of God. And does anybody know what the image of God is? Jesus. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So we have a structure. We have a design. We have a form. He was found in fashion as a man. And we have that same image. Now, in addition to that, God gave us something. And that was the power to choose. That is a divine prerogative. But he gave it to us. So in that way, we share his image. We have the power to choose. God had another power that is seldom ever talked about. He had the power to become. He changes not. He changes not. But he became flesh. That's a power to become, isn't it? And we have a power to become. If we, as it's said in John 1, 12, is it? As many as received you. Oh, by the way, how many of you heard receive the Lord? Here's the definition of what it means to receive the Lord. What is it? But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them which believed on his name, which were born, not of the will of man or of the flesh, but of God. Now the verb to believe is defined also in James 2, and it is faith plus works. Those who know him and obey him, they are the ones who the scripture refers to as as many as believed on his name, faith plus works. They know him, they do what he wants, and there's a work that we're commanded to do in his name, and that's to be baptized. And they are born, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. That's the indwelling of his spirit that makes us new creatures being born again. And those who have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and have received the gift of his spirit, 
To them he gave power to become. Not to be, but to become. And when, when you receive the new birth, when it's your experience, you haven't arrived at anything but the starting gate. The heir, the inheritor, the child of the ruler differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. And that time is when we grow up. He's not going to give us any kind of dominion until we grow up. I'm sorry. My sons really like their little car. But that didn't mean they could get behind the wheel of mine. Now they got their own cars now because they grew up. So we are created in his image and he gave us the right to become. That's one of the reasons why the church of Jesus Christ is totally and irrevocably and altogether and absolutely against abortion. When that life begins, when the sperm cell and the egg cell come together and there's a conception that conceived being has a right to become. And we better not take it away because we didn't give it. Right. Uh, did I get around that a little bit? I, I wasn't trying to evade it. I was trying to give you the, the dope on what does it mean? We're created in his image. He had... Fingers and toes, eyes and nose. My first pastor, Kirby Tiller, told me about the day that he really got converted. He said, I realized that my God had hands. Well, he did once he became flesh and dwelt among us. And that was a revelation that Jesus Christ is not just God. He is God and man. And don't buy into that as a man. He hungered as God. He fed the 5,000 because he was also God when he hungered. And he was also man when he fed the 5,000 because there's no time when that egg cell be could become a baby by itself. And there's no time that God would become flesh without unifying himself with the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, all the way down to Mary. Oh, yeah. All right. I'm getting off track there. That's my candy stick. I got to lick it every now and then. Praise God. Praise God. One preacher called oneness my hobby horse. You can imagine where he stood. But he was one of ours. No, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you just in time, don't I? Uh, what is your view of inerrancy versus infallibility? My view doesn't mean any more than yours does. 
in Second Peter 1, there's a statement made. Don't want you to miss it. Peter was talking about when he and James and John were on the mount with Jesus, when he was transfigured before their eyes. And there appeared Moses and Elijah, and they spoke with Jesus about his decease or his exodus, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. And when it was done, what did Mr. Smart Guy say? Lord, it's good for us to be here. True. Absolutely true. So let us build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Dumb. And what happened? There came a voice from heaven. And that voice said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. In other words, you don't give your attention and allegiance to Moses. You don't give your attention and allegiance to Elijah. You give your attention and allegiance to the Son of God. And Peter said, this voice we heard. We heard this voice. We aren't talking to you about cunningly devised fables. We heard the voice. But we also have a more sure word of prophecy to what you do well that you take heed. Imagine he just said we heard the voice of the Almighty speaking from heaven directly to us and we have a more sure word than that. So what do we think of the scriptures? Jesus relied on them. He called him the word of God. Do I believe in inerrancy? Oh, yes, I do. Because Peter said, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That settles it. That settles it. They weren't mischievous men. And they weren't bringing their genius into print. So you can trust the scripture. Now, I am not telling you that the King James Version is inerrant. That's a translation of a Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and the translation has a problem. It is a translation. Scholars can't translate outside of their own understanding. So when there's a question, they apply their own understanding to that translation. That's why you can find exactly the same article used in one sentence and translated two different ways. When it's not just exactly the same article, it's in the same grammatical structure and format. But the translators could not translate it the same both times because that would violate their theology. It spoke of God 
and the Father and Christ, if you translate it the same way both times. And that created a problem for a Trinitarian because they've got God and the Father and Jesus Christ. And then when you add the Holy Ghost, that loses your Trini and gives you a quad. So what if they translated it even, which is a valid translation of kahi? God, even our Father, even Christ. Anybody here have a problem with that? No, that makes perfect sense. But if you're a Trinitarian, you can't translate that sentence that way because that eliminates the Trini and makes him just one. So no translation is infallible. No translation is inerrant because a translation is the work of the minds of men. The translations aren't inspired. They are the work of scholars and no matter how diligent they are and how determined they are, they can't escape their own mindset when they translate. So don't buy that. Somebody asked me, Brother Readout, which translation do you prefer? And I annoy most of those that ask me that. <laughs> because I prefer the one they don't like. Some of those guys prefer the Amplified Bible. And trust me, there aren't Greek words for all those alternatives the Amplified Bible gives you. And we're not to add to it or take away from it, right? right. So if a translation comes and adds to it, something's not right there. And you know what? I wasn't thrilled with the Reader's Digest Condensed Bible either. because you're not supposed to take away from it. And you know what? I'm also not thrilled with the new King James or the new International or the NIV, which Brother Wright says is the nearly inspired version. <laughs> I like the King James version because of the rules that the translators committed themselves to try and abide by. Their purpose was to bring the meaning of the word in the original language over into English. And that is an extraordinarily difficult task. But they did their best. They were limited by their mindset. And they didn't get it all right. And sometimes their mindset was highly influenced by the fact that the one who was paying them was known to be prone to execute people who disagreed with his theology. King James. Okay. But the King James Version is translated from a Greek manuscript that is the compendium of 75% of all known manuscripts of the New Testament. Harmony. Across the board, 75%. The other 25%, they don't even agree among themselves. Now, here's a fact for you. None of the disagreements are critical to any critical doctrine. 
me. So you can prove the oneness of God regardless of the translation, unless it's an abominable thing like the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation, which had about 5,000 changes in its first three years of existence. As they encountered a problem, they changed it. This is their infallible scripture that needed to be changed 5,000 times, you know, 3,000 times, 4,000, 5,000 times. They keep changing it. It's not done yet. So, yes, I think if God has promised to preserve his word unto all generations, and I believe you can find that in the scripture, that he's going to do it through the majority manuscripts. That's what I think. So I believe in the infallibility of the original manuscripts. Copyists, they might slip up. But we do know something about those scribes among the Jewish ministry that were charged with the, the purpose of writing copies of the scripture, that they took extreme pains to make sure they got it exactly right because they considered it to be the word of God, not to be altered. And if they made a mistake, just a simple mistake, they destroyed the manuscript. It didn't matter if they were in the last paragraph and they got a little <coughs> that wasn't supposed to be there. The whole manuscript would be destroyed. I think with that kind of sincerity, we have a reason to trust certain manuscripts. Now, there are other manuscripts that are compilations of scriptures, of the various manuscripts. The problem with those is they are all eclectic. Who knows what eclectic means? That means the guys that were looking it over and going to put it together chose which reading they preferred. And that's the reason, the reading that they included in their manuscript. I don't think any prophecy of the scripture should be of any private interpretation. So that eliminates all those others. Inerrancy, yes, the originals were inerrant. Copies might not be. But I do believe God preserved a copy. And I think it's the Textus Receptus or the received text, which the King James Version used for the New Testament. And I believe it's the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, which was compiled by the Jewish leaders, the Jewish scholars of all the known works of scripture. And there were some writings that people respected that they threw out because they didn't have the quality demanded of the word of God. There would be a mistake, a contradiction here or there. And so they said, no, that wasn't God's word. Because that contradiction creates confusion, and God is not the author of confusion. So yeah, I dig the KJV. Brother, read that. It's so hard to understand. Well, get used to it. Learn it. Learn it. You're going to find out there's a reason why it's still the best-selling Bible. Because it has the most magnificent English that was ever used. 
And don't think it was the English of the 1600s. Compare it with Shakespeare. And you'll find that they left out the habit of the English language in those days to be flowery, full of adjectives. And they made it very sparse, very spare, because those adjectives weren't in the original language. Okay. Can I harp on a related subject? Jesus Christ is called the faithful and true witness. What that means is, you people don't speak deity. You don't speak transcendent. You don't speak infinite and absolute. And there's no possible way you could find out God. He's unsearchable. He's beyond our reach. But Jesus Christ translates deity into human. And he does it faithfully and true. Sorry, just had to just had to throw that out there. Done. Wait, wait. I said done. You done with that question? He's the pastor. I'm the guest. There's a question from a young person that um, this is still from last week. And this person asked, teenager said, I still have confusion understanding the Son of God. One of the examples given was like when he prayed to the Father in the garden. Yeah, I think in my early days, I got that statement. Well, if, if Jesus is God, why did he pray? And I learned right on the spot by the help of the Holy Ghost to ask a question back. Do you mean because Jesus prayed he can't be God? Well, well, no. Well, if he can be God in any way, he can be the only God. He's both God and man. The, the fullest answer to this question, I hope you can follow, I gave you the, the statement in Galatians 4 about the heir. Though he be Lord of all, differs nothing from a servant until the time appointed of the Father. Jesus Christ had to validate his titles. He had to prove his identity. He had to qualify to be our Savior. Let me say it again. He had to qualify to be our Savior. Was he our Savior? Oh, yeah, from before the foundation of the world. But there were things that God's Word required of the Savior. There are sufferings that God's word required that the Savior endure. And until he did, he wasn't our Savior. He had to qualify for it. And, of course, being a human being as well as deity, he had to have right relationship with deity. 
with spirit. He couldn't tell a lie, not only because he was God in his truth, but had he done so, it would have eliminated his ability to be without sin. Well, if Jesus Christ was God, why did he hunger? You mean because he hungered, he can't be God at all? Well, no, no, he's the son of... Well, if he can be God at all, he can be the only God. Because he doesn't have our limits. So, there's a statement that was in the lesson I taught this morning. Well, sometime this week. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. You remember that one? It's Old Testament. It's New Testament. It's been both. And the Lord told me which day this day was. This day have I begotten thee. This day. Does that indicate to you a specific day? Of course it does. That's what the words mean. Was Jesus Christ the Son of God? Yes. From when? From when that conception took place in the womb of Mary. When the Word became flesh. He was the Son of God. We were told that. The angel told Mary that. Because the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. That holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called... The Son of God, not a Son of God, the Son of God. Right, well, was that the day he was begotten? I think it's Acts 13. And I think it's verse 32. You pardon me if I'm wrong because I've had some strokes that have affected my memory. And if I get it wrong, we'll find it. And you can help me find it. Okay. And we declare unto you glad tidings. Yeah, re real good. I think, I think it's Acts 13, starting verse 32. I think, I think, I think. I'm... And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So what day was this day? The day in which he was begotten. The day of the resurrection. Because everything was fulfilled. Every requirement was fulfilled. That's what he meant when he cried, it is finished. I've suffered everything I had to suffer. There was one thing lacking. They had not given him vinegar to drink. And so that the scripture might be fulfilled, he saith, I thirst. They gave him vinegar to drink, and he said, it is finished. What was finished? Not your salvation. 
That depended on his dying, being buried, and rising again. Even ascending into heaven and even returning in spirit. So it wasn't your salvation was finished. But what was finished is he, he checked off all of the requirements that God had for Messiah. He got them all done so he could afford to die and would be our Messiah. So Jesus had to qualify for his titles and to fulfill his mission. That's one of the reasons why he prayed. That's one of the reasons why he was among us and didn't make overly overt declarations of who he is because he had to prove himself to be exactly what Messiah is. I hope that answer gets through to whoever asked the question. The fact that he prayed doesn't at all diminish the fact that he was also God Almighty. Boy, it's quiet. I said something good there. Thank you. Bless you. I don't know if it, if it did it for whoever asked the question. Jesus Christ was not semi-human. He was not semi-God. He was both the almighty God incarnate, and when he was incarnate, he was flesh and blood, a human being. He could die. Deity cannot die, but the humanity can die. The manifestation of God can die and did. But you know what? He wasn't just human. And so when he died, death got a hold of him, grabbed him, clutched him. But when the time limit came, it was not possible that he should be holding of death. That's Acts 2, yeah. 24. See, if I get it right, I feel better about myself. Yes. Read it. Whom God hath raised up. Whom God hath raised up. Having loosed the pains of death. Having loosed the pains of death. Because, because it, was, it was not possible. It was not possible that he should be holding of it. Uh, I, well, anyway, don't ever think that anything you read about him in Scripture indicates that he's not God. He is God manifested. And I'll go a step further for those of you who get a little theological bent. When you try to make a dividing line in Christ between deity and humanity, you're just wrong because that's not where the dividing line occurs. Mary's egg cell could not become a male child without 23 chromosomes that it didn't have. And God could not become flesh except for through the method he promised, which involved the seed of 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Judah, all the way down through Zerubbabel, by the way, and on to Mary. So there wouldn't have been an incarnation without the egg cell of Mary. And there wouldn't have been a baby born without the 23 chromosomes of the word becoming flesh and making a conception in her womb with her seed. You understand? But there is a place for a dividing line. And it's all the way back at the very beginning when God first defined himself. In the beginning was the word. And the dividing line is between God transcendent and God manifested. One God goes from transcendent to manifested. And that's what made everything else possible. That's where the division is. It's not between his deity and his humanity because neither one would have mattered had they not both been together. He was God manifested in the flesh. In him dwelt all the pleroma, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him all the fullness was pleased to take up permanent residence. Jesus. Did he hunger? Yeah, we're told he did. Did he get weary? Yeah, we're told he did. Do you hunger? Yeah, he was made in all points like as we are, but he was without sin. Right? He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Oh, come on. <laughs> that is wonderful news. All right, well, okay. Done with that one. We are not going to get to all these. <laughs> I'm good at that. There's a lot of questions. That, uh, I haven't seen these questions. He has not seen them. I, if, I haven't let him see them. If he'd given me option, I said, we won't deal with that one. We won't deal with that one. <laughs> he doesn't know what's coming. Um, I know whom I have believed. But, you know, this one, um, I think... Uh, after people hear the missing dimension of prayer, it makes you wonder how to pray, right? So he, if God knows the beginning to the end of all things, he knows what we have need of even before we ask, why must we pray about these things? What is the purpose? Because we don't know what we need. We don't know how to fulfill his will. We don't know how to cooperate with him. So we go and we ask him. You know, Saul of Tarsus was a bright guy. And when he got his revelation of Jesus Christ, he asked a question. Who art thou, Lord? You know what that meant? He was calling him Lord, Adonai. We would take it to mean Yahweh. Who are you, Yahweh? He was asking, by what name are you revealing yourself to me? What function, what purpose are you revealing to me for? 
Are you going to be Yahweh Nissi, the Lord, my battle standard, as I war against this terrible heresy of Christ? Are you going to be Yahweh Jireh, my provider, providing the resources I need in my campaign? By what name shall I know you? And what was the answer? I am Yahweh Hashua. I am Yeshua, which is the concentrated form. When you contract the two parts of that Hebrew name and make them one, you don't dilute it, you concentrate it. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. What was his next question? What wilt thou have me to do? So he didn't get up and say, oh, wow, Jesus is God. Well, I'm going to change my plan, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. No. He was wise enough to say, God knows what I should do. I don't know what I should do. I might have great ideas. I might have magnificent plans. I might just go back to Jerusalem and walk into the temple and address the chief priests and tell them. Wouldn't that be a shocker? What an opportunity, because they still think I'm on their side. But he said, what wilt thou have me to do, Lord? And you know something else? His revelation was strong enough that he did what he was told. We pray because we do not always know. In fact, we almost never know what God wants, what God intends. In the study which Brother Thorson has a copy of. Brother Smith has a copy. Brother McAtee has a copy of. So don't... You can ask them. I make the statement that the Lord dealt with me, and he asked me a question when I was asking him to save my dad. The question he asked me is, why don't you ask me what you can do to help your father receive my salvation. And my response, being the bright spiritual genius that I am, was, okay, Lord, what can I, and he stopped me. No, no, no. I didn't tell you to ask me a question. I asked you a question. Why don't you ask me? Oh, we don't have to go there, do we? <laughs> And the reason was, I didn't care as much as he cares. But I wanted to get credit for convincing God to save my dad. I wanted to be co-savior with him doing all the work and me getting some of the credit. That that was uh, a spanking. That revealed my motives. So if he knows what we have need of before we ask, why do we go ask? He knows what we need. So why don't we go and ask him, Lord, what do I need? Because we have almost no interest in what we need. We're pretty well satisfied with who and what we are. We just want him to eliminate the damning parts. And he's still working on that. And he's going to tell us what needs to be worked on. 
And I don't want to have to work on me. I want him to be my tool, not me his. I'm in good company. I'm sorry telling you that, but in fact, that's why we pray the way we pray. But the scripture is very clear that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And sometimes the spirit will take over and we'll find ourselves with groanings that cannot be uttered as the spirit deals with the real issues. So he knows why do we pray? Well, the simple answer is because he told us to. And you don't have to know the reason. Does he give account of his measures? No, God doesn't give account to you. He doesn't have to answer to you. He doesn't have to live up to your expectations. You have to live up to his. That's right. You have to give account to him. And so we pray in order to find out what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And when you do what God tells you to do, the way God tells you to do it, when God tells you to do it, you will have success. Amen. This might be the last question. Hallelujah. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. There's a lot more questions. There's some really great questions here. So. Wait a minute. You just said that that might. But this might be the last might. question. I, I, have a, I have a time in my mind that I don't want to read any more questions. It just depends on how fast he answers it. <laughs> James 4, 5 says, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? And um, so that spirit that dwelleth in us that lusteth to envy. That's God's spirit. How does that relate to our God being a jealous God? Well, you read a little further. Oh, from James 4. But he giveth more grace. Uh, okay, start over and read it, and don't stop until you get there. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Yeah, I didn't want to answer the question without that little tagline there. In fact, the scripture tells us that God is a jealous God. You know what? He has the idea that he's the only God. What a thing for him to think. And... He knows that your only hope is to have right relationship with him. So when you divert and you start paying attention to imaginary gods, to false gods, he is jealous, not for himself. He doesn't prosper because you get saved. He is complete in and of himself. He is self-sufficient. But you prosper. And he has this attribute, this divine attribute, this attribute of deity 
that no one else shares, and that is that he is love. And his love for you never changes. Regardless of who and what you are and do. If you doubt that, there are scriptures that specifically state that. There's one where the prophet quotes God. I am the Lord. Is that Malachi 3? Two. Yeah. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. What he's saying is, if, if I could be affected by external phenomena, you would have been destroyed a long time ago. But I started loving you. And I cannot be turned from loving you. And one of the prophets said, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. You understand? So that's his character. And he is jealous because our love that should be for him, which builds us, which blesses us, which helps us become what he is designing to make us into, that gets diminished. And it doesn't hurt him. It hurts you. Now, what do we do when our loved one diverts some of their love and attention and gives it to someone else? Do we get jealous? Yeah. Do we envy the other person that's getting the love that we want and feel belongs to us? Yes, we do. And what do we do? We get even. But what does he do? He giveth more grace. That's different than what we do. He giveth more grace. Yes, he's a jealous God. Yes, the spirit that's in us lusteth to envy. That word lust isn't talking about some sensual garbage. It's talking about he has this powerful desire and his desire for you to become all he intends you to be is so powerful that when your affection is diverted to a false god, he gets envious because it's destroying you. And what does he do? He beats you over the head. No. No. He giveth more grace. I know you've been taught a definition of grace. Christianity has taught it for 2,000 years that it's unmerited favor. But I'm going to tell you that is a lousy definition of the word. If you study it, you're going to find that grace is God's willingness to make himself known to you. And so when your mindset gets taken away from him and put on a false God, even a little bit of it put on a false God, he gives more grace. He tries to reveal himself to you a little more. He gives you the opportunity to learn a little more about him 
And the more you learn about him, the less you care about everything else. I want to say it again. A moment in his intimate presence will make you desire another moment in his in immediate presence more than anything else in the world. In fact, you'd be willing to give up all the rest of your life for one more moment in that presence. Now, I'm not talking about what we feel in church. I'm talking about being in the personal presence the face-to-face, -face, the prosopon presence of God. Oh, I want to see him. To look upon his face. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's related to the jealousy of God. Amen. See, I managed to prolong that. It's 8 o'clock. Praise the Lord. So sorry that if I can get to all the questions tonight. There's a lot of really good questions. You didn't sort them out to get the good ones first? I was trying to follow the leading of the Spirit as I moved through these blame questions. Blame it on God. <laughs> That's what we all do. We blame it on God. <laughs> I love this man. I really love this man. If you don't, something's wrong with you. Oh, but if you knew him like I do... I think I do. <laughs> I know God does, and God loves him. If God can do it, and he's perfect, why can't you? Because you're not perfect. That's why you can't. Oh, I'm sorry. I, Amen. Ornery. Ornery. <laughs> Consistency's my virtue. I just started ornery. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So... Uh, I know there's some, a lot of other great questions on here. We could go for hours. I know some of us have to be up early. and So um, if you have uh, some of these questions um, might be answered in some of the documents that Brother Readout already has. And um, so I'm very thankful. I think there were some good questions, some people that, needed to have some of these answers that's really going to help them. So I'm thankful to have Brother Reed out here. And, you know, I flew out to Connecticut and spent three days. I don't know how many hours a day did we spend <laughs> from morning till late I at night. I believe we slept at some time <laughs> each day. Early morning, met for breakfast. We had lunch and dinner. And um, we sat in his office going through all these pages of questions. I wish we could get to a lot of those questions and things that we talked about, but we'd be here for many, many hours. So um, isn't this awesome? Yes. Amen. And when you're a student of the word, that's, it's awesome to be able to not just give an easy answer, but to give the proof of it. Amen. So that's what's important. That's why I like these Q&As. He doesn't like them, but I like them because it's good for me. So. Brother Thorson, my first teacher allowed us to ask questions. And he himself has testified that after the Bible study on the campus was over, my wife and I would sit and ask him questions. 
Sometimes he got to go home at 3 a.m. Never complaining because he wanted to feed the hungry. He wanted to answer the questions. He answered all the questions with the same answer. And it boiled down to Jesus is the only God. I'm just saying. But sometimes he left the Bible study to go to work the next morning because answering questions is important. It is more important that the answer not be a man's ideas. It's more important that the answer actually be the right answer. And that takes time. You've got to prove that this is the answer. And that means that you may have to answer five or six questions to prove that the answer to the first one was the right answer. And I was busy. I was, a, I was busy pastoring, raising my family, being a district superintendent. And I got a letter from the man who founded the Internet's award-winning volunteer help site called allexperts.com. Don't bother, it's gone now. And he wrote me and asked me if I would agree to be an expert and answer questions about the Bible and Christianity. Now, I don't know how he got my email address. I didn't know the man, never heard of him, never heard of allexperts.com. But one of the requirements was when you get an answer, you are committing to answer it within 72 hours. And I just didn't believe that was going to be possible. So I started writing him, telling him, no, I, I thank you for your confidence in me. I have no idea how you found out about me, but I can't do it. And the Lord told me to do it. And in the next 20 years, I spent 8 to 12, 14, 16 hours a day answering questions. And you know, I finally learned that they took my request to heart and they made it so that an expert could limit the number of questions he'd accept in a day. You know, you get three questions, you've got to answer them in 72 hours. You're going to be busy unless you just write the answer. But that doesn't help them because somebody else will write an answer that sounds more acceptable, easier to adopt. And that doesn't help at all. And so you might know the first question I got was from a 15-year-old girl who was flunking out of school, taking heavy antipsychotic medications out of relationship with her family and making $50,000 a year from her astrology website. Her question was, is it true that God's against astrology? Well, if I had written back, yes, it is. <laughs> that would have been the end of it. But I dealt with it, and why? And that young lady after almost a year of communications, I have the whole transcript. After almost a year, well, before the year was out, she closed her website. She got all, 
off of all of those medications. She restored her relationship with her parents, and she graduated with honors. And she went into full-time Christian service. We had no church near her. And, you know, the Lord told me that that made the time well spent. Had a Chinese college professor in Singapore ask me a question. His purpose was to get me to criticize the message that was preached in the Assemblies of God church that he had left because he didn't like their music. And he wanted me to criticize the message that was preached that would justify his changing churches. And I ended up convincing him that he didn't care about truth. He just cared about his own music preference. And after a year of communications, he went to Truth Tabernacle or House of Truth, whatever our church was in Singapore. Steve Willoughby was the missionary. And he received the Holy Ghost. He was baptized. He also got off of all of his antipsychotic medications, was lifted out of his depression, and began teaching my lessons to other college professors at the college that he taught in. And he's in our church to this day. And that was 20 years ago, more than that. So answering questions with an answer that is a proof has the possibility of changing a soul. Amen. That wasn't bragging. I'm just explaining why I'm long-winded. <laughs> Amen. Brother McAtee, I'm going to have him come up and, and close tonight. If he takes this microphone from my cold, dead hands, I'll be done. <laughs> I voluntarily surrender the microphone to you. Is that a first? Probably. I was reconsidering at the last Thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the wisdom that we've heard tonight. We thank you for this, this time that the readouts have been with us for these, uh, these last nine days and all of what has been imparted. And I just pray that, that you would help each one of us that has received something to really give it its due, to meditate on it, to think about it, and let that seed be something that, that germinates inside of us and sprouts and and grows into something that really has an impact in our lives and draws us closer to you, that turns our attention towards you because it's all about you. It's all about knowing you and understanding you and seeking you so that we can be a witness in this world. This world needs people that know you and understand you, that can proclaim who you are. And we wanna be those faithful witnesses to you we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I love you. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for 